0: My friends, would you please stand with me as we read the Lord's Word this morning. And this morning we are reading from Luke chapter 13. We will resume with Psalm 139 next week. Um, As you can tell, uh, I have a little bit of the hurricane on my mind as I watch these things uh, take place. So I'd like to read to us from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all of the Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them were worse culprits Than all the men who live in Jerusalem, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone serve for this year, too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated, friends? Again, our Father, we thank you for this day and thank you for your word. And I pray that your blessing be upon this servant and upon these your people, and we pray that you would give us um, our daily bread, that you would provide for us now, that which is necessary to do the work you've called us to, that of preaching your word and that of hearing your word and receiving it and wrestling with it. Father, we know that we are engaged in such a, a tremendous spiritual battle, but we don't see We don't see, Father, with our eyes, the unseen. And so we are inclined to think that there is no spiritual battle. But wayward thoughts and anxious thoughts and bitter thoughts and angry thoughts assail us. Sleep comes to us, even though we slept, um, easily distracted by all the events of this world around us, so that we do not hear. The gospel seed goes out and The birds of the air pick it up. Satan steals it away. Father, would you please come and be present with us now by your spirit? Would you please give us ears to hear? And again, O Lord, I ask that you would cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. And I ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, are you ready to be taken in death? Are you ready to stand before him who created you? Um, I, w- I watched the hurricane with fascination in between our presbytery meeting. I'd go back into my room at night and I'd turn on uh, weather and they, that's all they were talking about was weather. We, living in Southern Florida the way we did, we also went through a year of so many hurricanes, in fact, threatened Southern Florida that year. They they ran out of English Letters and they started to go into the Greek alphabet. That's how many we had. We spent six months with hurricane shutters up in our house. It was like living in a cave uh, for those six months. So I take, I take hurricanes uh, to heart and it, and it brings back. And we only went through a mild hurricane, a couple of them, Katrina and Wilma, uh, when they hit southern Florida. And I remember the destruction from these things. And here, Hurricane Ian was just a monster. We only experienced a Category 2 just at the precipice of a Category 3, 110 mile an hour sustained winds. Here, this Category 5 hurricane had sustained winds of 157 miles per hour or higher, and it caused, and you've seen the pictures, I'm sure, catastrophic damage, especially the Fort Myers area where it hit One uh, Alterman said that roughly 90 percent of the Fort Myers Beach is gone 90 percent uh, we saw houses being washed down streets we saw some pictures of palm trees standing and blowing like this and water was up to the froms, uh of those palm trees and you can't imagine the sheer amount of water and strength and wind Millions of people were without electricity. I understand that that's now down to just about uh, 900,000. 42,000 linemen are working trying to restore power. They said it could be months before some places get power back. I'd estimate that there's somewhere between hundreds or thousands of people now without homes, and the death toll continues to rise. Uh, it was as of this morning 50, um, 50 people. Certainly, it'll become more. These amount of people have lost their lives. It's very easy for us sitting here in Wyoming to say, "Well, they shouldn't live so close to the beach." We certainly haven't made that mistake, have we? <laughs> we haven't. We don't live anywhere near water, uh, generally speaking, and we could say to them, "Well, it's their fault." for not evacuating. And I I just want to put this myth, you know, you, you say, a governor says, well, you should evacuate. That's good practical advice, except there's millions of other people getting the same advice at the exact same time. And there's not many roads that lead out of southern Florida, to be honest. We knew a man who lived through Hurricane Andrew, and he told us, oh, I would never leave my home. He goes, because if I leave my home, I will end up dying in traffic because the hurricane will hit you there. And, and this is a very real problem. And, and you think, well, you just board up your house and you go. But when you're contending with millions of people, you go to a Home Depot, you know the storm is, is barreling down on you. You go to buy your, um, uh, your plywood, and there's 100, 150 people standing ahead of you. And you get up there, and they say, sorry, we're out of plywood. And now you've got to go find it. And then there's the thought, if I do get my house boarded up and I can fight the traffic, my house is going to be looted while I'm gone, and everything that I've worked for will be taken away from me. So it's not, it's not quite uh, as easy as it sounds. And so you get out and you go, and I knew a family like this who left because of one hurricane coming, and they went to a town upstate, and the, the, the storm took a, a turn nobody expected, and it came through, and it hit them upstate and it missed them downstate. So it's really a very difficult thing. You can't do enough to protect your homes. And in all of the preparations you make, you can't begin to make the proper preparations. Let me ask you, was there any preparations made on the part of the 50 or so people in regard to their souls? And so when there's a national catastrophe like this, um, what what strikes me is that it's always a, a wonderful reminder. You know, this is what funerals are supposed to do. This is what funerals are supposed to do. It's supposed to, They're not for the dead people. They're for the people living, that they will be reminded that a day of dying, a death, is coming to every one of us. It would be a mistake to watch the news and to hear about these hurricanes and to say, hmm, That's just too bad for them. The question is, are you prepared for the next disaster? Mind you, we live on the southern side of the world's largest volcano. Just saying. Um, We're not. um, We're not, you look surprised. Yes, (laughs) Yellowstone is a giant volcano, in case you didn't know, right? And it's one of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest. Storms, uh, wars, uh, the, th- the whole thing between Russia and Ukraine, mass shootings, these are all terrible events. And we live in a fallen world, a world under judgment. And are you surprised when I tell, tell you or told you that God is the one who sends the storm? Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised to hear that it is God who withdraws grace from a people professor in seminary said that. When you see burglar bars going up on windows, that's an indication that God is withdrawing his grace from a people. When you see crime, when you hear about the shootings, the stabbings, and watch the videos of beatings in subway systems, um, we are being reminded that the grace of the Lord is being withdrawn from a people. Where can you go to avoid these hardships? Apparently, there is no safe place. There is no place, no time where you are exempt from the possibility of death. It comes at the appointed time. Psalm one thirty nine sixteen. the days ordained for me. He, the Lord knows all of these things. No one knows when this time will be. Some of you may live another 50 or 60 years, and others may not see another Sunday. We are reminded of this even by our brother Joshua who took a fall this week. And I truly, I'm praising the Lord when you hear about the details and I'll let them tell you, we should praise the Lord that our brother Joshua was spared because that can happen to any one of us in an instant in the blink of an eye. We were driving along, Al drove uh, beautifully. Um, Of course, but as we're talking, he says, you know, it's amazing how quick our lives could end. It could be you drop a candy wrapper, which he didn't. He was very responsible. But you could drop, a, and you could turn. You could look at something and just inadvertently turn the wheel into oncoming traffic, and your life can end this quick. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for such a thing? Are you ready to be taken in death Um, I want us to consider, first of all, the days in which we are living. I want to read to us in Luke chapter 12, verses 54 and following. Listen to what is written. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Now, this isn't, this isn't the focus of today's um, message, but it does set the context here. Jesus has been addressing the people, his disciples and others, and he has gotten after them for their rote performance of rituals and their disciplines and their hearts, which are far from the Lord. And they need to be ready. They need to be ready for what is to come. Now understand, um, at this point, as Jesus is speaking, he has not yet been crucified. He has not died. He has not been buried. And so, therefore, there has been no resurrection. From where we sit, on this point, at this place in history, Christ has not only come and lived and died and, and been resurrected, uh, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and friends, he is coming again. We are between his ascension and the day of judgment. That's where we sit in history. The question is, where are we in relation to this? He has rebuked them, these people, as being hypocrites, because they know the weather. They look at the natural world around them, and they make appropriate preparations for the world around them, but they don't analyze the present time and do not make the appropriate preparations. If they read the times like they could read the weather conditions, they would know that they better prepare, that is, deal with their unfinished business. Deal with unfinished business. Um, uh, Luke twelve here verses fifty seven through fifty nine. Jesus says, and why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going, uh, you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate. On your way, there make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid. The very last cent. I remember, as a uh, as a, a little boy, uh, we would slug each other pretty good. Don't do this at home. <laughs> Don't do these things. But we would, we would, we would. End, I have two younger brothers, an older brother, older sisters. Uh, we would end up slugging each other, and the threat inevitably came: "I'm going to tell Dad." That is the worst thing. I mean, you could tolerate. I'm going to tell Mom, and you say, "I'll get off easy." You tell your dad you're not getting off so easy and I remember that being threatened I'm going to go tell dad and it would be the worst thing in the world to tell your dad and so quickly as soon as you heard those words you would say I'm sorry or here you can have this or or here hit me let's just make it even let's just tit for tat we can settle this out of court Um, but the last thing you want is you want to have it go to your father You knew that if it reached the high court of your father, there would be punishment. Deal with your issues before you stand before the Lord. Now's the time for you to deal with your sin before the day you die. Because, friends, after you die, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, there is no second chance, there is no purgatory, There is no getting out of hell. That's it. Now's the day. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes what? Comes the judgment. Comes the judgment. Jesus was talking to the Jews. No amount of tradition or self-discipline would prepare them to be able to stand before a holy God. My friends, a day of judgment is coming on this world. Do you not see what is happening to us in this world? It's time to wake up. The world is growing increasingly dark. The light has faded. The Christian faith is being frowned upon more and more. Um, He is withdrawing his grace. Burglar bars are going up. Murder is on the rise. I mean, incredible amounts of murder. I understand that in Philadelphia this year, they've already exceeded 400 people, and the year's uh, not out yet. Murders. That's not counting Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, Atlanta. It's not counting any of those. Murder is on the rise. The Lord is bringing his judgment on the world soon. We, and we will all stand before the Lord and we'll all give an account of our lives for every deed and every careless word that we've spoken. Many people have died in these past months. They died. And they thought that they might have one more day that they would see at least one more Christmas time and they are no longer here. That's what we're dealing with. So this is the context that is leading up to Luke chapter 13. It is a context of judgment, and we read in verse one, Now, on the same occasion, now on the same occasion, there were some present who were reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There is much conjecture on this point. Why did they tell Jesus about this? He's just talked about the judgment that is coming. He's just talked about what is to come upon people. Why would they bring this up? Again, there's much uh, conjecture about this, but I believe there is, in light of our Lord's warnings to them, one reason primarily why they did tell him. They did not believe that Jesus, when he spoke of judgment, that he was speaking to them about them. His words couldn't apply to us, couldn't possibly apply to us. Therefore, they come forward to Jesus at this time, and they give what they thought was a great example of all that he was just talking about. Was there example about Pilate mixing the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifice An appropriate one. Was it a fitting one, a fitting example of all that Jesus had just talked about? Yeah, Jesus, you said, beware. You know, we could see the weather and we judge the weather, but we don't discern the times. Just like those Galileans. They didn't think about whether they should go ahead and offer sacrifices with Pilate watching. That was dumb. It could never possibly affect us. We don't build houses near beaches. We don't put ourselves in harm's way. Why isn't their example a fitting one? Why does Jesus warn them? It is because, I believe, friends, that they diverted attention away from themselves to those who were suffering and thought and and acted as if it could never possibly come to us. Why is this passage here? And consequently, why is it for 2,000 years the church has been warned through this passage you see, friends, it's always easier and more desirable to talk about another's faults and liabilities than it is to to examine ourselves. Friends, many suppose they are better off than they really are. Many of us suppose that we are better off than we really are. Just take, for example, here, the fact that Jesus is dealing with the Jews. They're not Gentiles. We're not Gentiles we're circumcised we're holy we do we eat food that's ceremonially clean right we have the smartest and the brightest children everyone knows this right we've got all of these wonderful things that are going for us what could possibly be awaiting us as far as harm and then apply that same principle to the church today we're clean living Why we go to church, we read our Bibles, we are disciplined, we're giving, our children are the brightest and smartest and the most well-dressed, sometimes. We have all of these things going for us. What possibly, what possible need do I have of being concerned about judgment? I have ordered my life so it is impervious to hardship and destruction and to death. Nothing's going to come to me. I'm safe. And so this mindset, this mindset, again, some present uh, who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We're informed of of Pilate. Here he is the governor of Judea under Emperor uh, Tiberius. Of his dealings with the Galileans, there is no other record in historic uh, documents regarding this event. Pilate, we know, was cruel. He used to preside during their feasts. And why certain Galileans were bludgeoned while offering sacrifices so as to have their own blood offered on the altar as well, we do not know. There is is no mention of this. However, it is not important as to why Pilate did it, as the point that is being brought up is not about Pilate's cruelty, but to point out the supposed wickedness of these certain Galileans. People don't just suffer like this for no reason, Jesus. This is an example of what we're talking about, you see. It wasn't an uncommon way of thinking. In the Jewish mindset, great tragedy is the result of great sin. Two brief examples. There is uh, Job, Eliphaz the Temanite, says this, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent... Where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity, and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. You see, that was the Jewish mindset. That was the mindset of, of these people. Even in, in, John two, in John 9, verse 2, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? that he would be born blind. By Jesus' answer to them, we know what they were getting at. Sinners die a sinner's death. Judgment comes upon the wicked. Implicitly, uh, they are stating that the Galileans died horribly because they must have been horrible sinners. Not so much, perhaps, with Hurricane Ian that just destroyed southern Florida. But do you recall Hurricane Katrina and that it hit New Orleans and it hit the week that they were supposed to celebrate Gay and Lesbian Pride Week or month or something like this? And I think people went, ooh, New Orleans... I mean, I don't know about Fort Myers or Sanibel or Bonita Springs. I don't know about those places, but New Orleans? Come on. They're bad sinners. And so they, they deserved exactly what they got. They deserved it. This is the mindset. Um, they died horribly because they must have been horrible sinners. But we don't have to worry about that sort of thing, Jesus, because on the relative scale of things, we are good and not horrible sinners. Do you ever think to yourself, think of yourself that way? I'm so glad that I'm not like that tax collector. I'm so glad that I fast twice a week and I tithe of all that I get and I'm very diligent and very faithful in my church attendance. And please, be faithful in your church attendance but don't place your confidence in church attendance as though it's somehow meritorious before the Lord. My friends, why is it that good people, I use that in those air quotes, why is it that good people of the world never think there is anything to fear? Because, first of all, they don't see how truly good they aren't. (laughs) And secondly, because they don't, like Isaiah, come to see who God truly is. You see, when we fail to know who the Lord is, we'll always be delusional about ourselves. But the proper way things should work is as your, as your understanding of who the Lord is and his holiness grows, your view of yourself becomes more and more realistic. The gap, which oftentimes starts kind of like right here, God and, and man, this is the way we look at ourselves. I'm six foot almost two, But God is six foot four. He's a little bigger than me. A little more powerful. That's the way we think in the world. God's my homeboy. He's my co-pilot. I'm holding the wheel. But you see, as you read the scriptures, you start to see this happen. God gets bigger and bigger. And I get smaller and smaller. And I start to see this so that you have the phenomena like we hear with the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. That wasn't said lightly, and I think he meant it very much because he understood the longer you walk with the Lord, the longer you walk in his word, the more you see who he is, the more clearly you see what you are, and you have to understand that you're a wretch. Because they don't see or don't recognize they remain smug and proud of themselves, and very comfortable with themselves, and they are very hard on others. So, in their thinking, and so in their words and actions, they begin to think things like: people who get AIDS are getting what they deserve; people who who send their children to public school are getting what they deserve. When when people go in there with guns, and people who die in earthquakes and in the Himalayas or in Japan or In California, we're all waiting for the epicenter to hit Hollywood, aren't we? They deserve it. We become cold and callous about tragedy in the world, figuring that those who suffer are just getting what they deserve. And conversely, that's why it'll never happen to me. There's a smugness smugness there. To be sure, God does punish sin. Your sin has a price tag. It will cost you speeding. Uh, If you're caught speeding, you will get a ticket. If you are a murderer, you will likely suffer the death penalty. Drug dealers do get shot down by those would-be who would-be clients. But friends, not everyone who has AIDS has been immoral. I knew a man, a fellow in our church youth group, who got a bad batch of blood, a transfusion, and ended up with AIDS. And not everyone in an earthquake in Hollywood is involved in immorality in the movie industry. And shootings happen in the inner cities, and guess where else they happen? In churches. The danger of this mentality is the pride associated with it, not to mention its bad theology. Jesus says to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I mean, isn't that the logical conclusion? They died because they were bad Galileans? Otherwise, why didn't we all die? Jesus says in verse 4, do you suppose that the 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? We infer during times of tragedy that those who suffer are bigger sinners than others or are more indebted to God or that I have no need to be concerned because of the way I live. That would be a faulty way of thinking about your lives. That would be a faulty thing. Jesus gives these words, Do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners? And again, were the eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell worse culprits than all the men in Jerusalem the answer friends plainly is no they were not worse sinners were the people in in New Orleans worse sinners than the people in Lander the people down in Fort Myers Beach worse sinners than the people in Wyoming the answer is no they are not worse sinners than us they were not greater sinners but just the same as you and me all are sinners. To be a sinner is to be one who misses the mark, who doesn't keep the word of God. We talked about this um, when we read uh, the Ten Commandments. right? We all want to say, and this was the, the big hot button in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus took the law and he did something with the law that they had never thought about doing. He drove it to their hearts. So that he says, you, 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 you boast about the fact that you've never murdered anyone. And he says, I tell you, if you look, or if you hate someone in your heart, guess what you're guilty of? Murder. You say, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus says, I tell you, when you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. Well, I, I've never outrightly told a lie. How about have you ever shaded the truth? Just tweaked it enough to make it sound acceptable and to get by and to create a false narrative, you're guilty of lying. You see, so if we took the law and everything it commands and everything it forbids, and then we apply it to this side or that, we end up saying, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Every one of us has violated the law of the Lord. We, we've sinned. We've missed the mark. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have defiled his holiness. We have made a mockery of who he is. And yet we have the gall to stand there and say, but I'm not as bad as that guy over there. You see what a smugness and what a falsity that would be, what a deception that would be that you would say to yourself, I, I'm not as bad, I'm not as needy as say other people are. Were they worse culprits, worse debtors, one who was indebted to God? Again, are we better than they? Are we worse than they? Nope, we're just the same as everyone else. The point is, there is no such thing as big sinners and little sinners. There is no such thing as mortal sins and venial sins. All sin deserves death. All sin brings about a judgment. James says in James 2, Verse 10: For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And Mark 7, if you want to turn over there with me, otherwise, just listen. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. We read this: And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, you see, as I read that, I go, man, adulteries and and, uh, coveting and sensuality. But you get to pride and you go, Oh, that's not so bad. Nobody nobody can see that one as much. And how many of us, proud Americans and proud Wyomians, will not take instruction from the word of the Lord, and yet we would still say, I'm good. You're not. It's not acceptable. It's American exceptionalism. I'm sorry. It's called being stiff-necked. It's called being You know, it's called being just uh, bullish and and being a donkey. Stubborn. But we put a a better spin on that. Pride, even pride, my friends, even pride is a damnable sin. Backroom politics, lust-filled looks and fairy tales, envy at the success of others, a secret rejoicing in the demise of another, And would we say I'm good? You're not good. And that's part of the good news is you're not good. And if you think you are good you understand you will never be prepared. You will never be prepared. The presupposition of these people that some were somehow more deserving of their tragic punishment and others weren't Was unfounded because before the face of God there is none who are righteous. You really are not, and I am not good. And the supposition that judgment only hits the wicked is a false notion. Again, because we are all fallen and sinful. My friends, the sinner does not escape the judgment of God, does not escape destruction. Jesus answers two times, and he says it quite emphatically. In verse 3 and 5, notice what he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He points out that what people believe, that good people go to heaven, this myth, and bad people go to hell, truly is a myth it's a myth because there is none who are righteous there are none who are good there are none who seek after God all people are bad and you see now on this point you say to yourself well look at me look at me I'm not I'm different than other people I'm not in the same category but friends when we do this we are comparing ourselves with other people and that's never a good place to be comparing yourself with other people Who are we supposed to compare ourselves against? Against the Lord. That's why the law is such an important thing to us, because it shows us what God requires of us. I can go all day long and find people that I'm better than in the eyes of the world. But I don't stand before them on Judgment Day, do I? Nor will you. But we will stand before the Lord. We all deserve to perish. That is, to be destroyed in hell forever, to go away into eternal punishment. Again, the common misconception that all men deserve heaven until they make themselves um, unacceptable for heaven. We think that way, I think. Everyone goes to heaven, isn't it? That's what we're told on television. Hallmark tells us that. Everyone dies and and they go to heaven. They get, and this is worse, they sprout wings. They become angels. No, that's not what the Bible says. All men deserve hell. No man goes to heaven apart from the grace of God. Not one of us deserves heaven. All men deserve hell. It's plain and simple. This is what the Bible and our Lord teach. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, We have violated his holiness. Every time you have sinned or missed the mark, you have violated the holiness of God, and the wages of your sin is death. That's the sentence that you are under. Because all are sinners against God, and none can pay off our debt before God, because God will not clear the guilty, we are told by Jesus you will likewise, all likewise, perish doesn't mean that we will have towers fall on us or that we'll have our blood spilt when we come to church. But it will certainly mean that one way or another, death is going to come to us. I view these hurricanes and I view these tragic events in this way, and I think this is biblical. The Lord was merciful. None of us is guaranteed another day. And the Lord sends a storm and it's sad for the people who go through these storms, especially for those who have died and who did not consider their souls and they died and they're now standing before the Lord. And some, without a doubt, some some are glorifying and magnifying the Lord Jesus and they are worshiping him. They are seeing their Savior face to face and others, others are in the, the bitterness of despair as their souls have been cast into hell. It is too late for them. My friends those storms, while they are powerful and strong and they are destructive, they demonstrate the might of God, they are left and given there so that you and I will say, ah, am I ready? That's what you should make of these things, these mass events, these tragedies that take place. They should be causing you to consider your own soul and if you are ready. Otherwise, friends, we will come. We will come to meet our maker, And again, like I said, it might be 50 or 60 years for some of you, and for some of you, you may not even see next Sunday. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you prepared to die? I think it's great you're sitting in church. I think it's great you're listening to the word. But I would be a fool, and so would you, if you thought that because you went to church, you are ready to meet your maker. That's a very important question for us to deal with. Death comes to everyone. The second death comes to those who are separated from God. And those in Jesus Christ will never taste the second death. There is hope for us. There is one way to stay the fires of hell and escape the wrath of God against the sinner. And Jesus says it again twice. He says, unless you repent, unless you repent, the person who repents will not undergo God's wrath. Let's talk about this word repentance for just a moment. You've been stealing, and you hear the pastor say, repent, and so you stop stealing. Is your soul in in a better place than it was? To repent means to change your mind, to have a change of heart, the change of the will, a change of the direction. It is to pass from darkness into light, from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness. It is what we call conversion. If you turn in your hymn books to page 856, it's a good time for us to do this. You're looking sleepy-eyed. 856. We covered this last Sunday evening as we were looking in Acts. We read this in paragraphs 2 and 3 of chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life. Listen to what they say. By it, a sinner, that is repentance, uh, by it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandment. Although repentance be not to be rested in, as any satisfaction for sin, or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet is it of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. What is the repentance Jesus is talking about? Is it just just change your lifestyle and you'll be better? You were once a drunkard and now you're sober. So that makes you fit for heaven. That's not at all what he's saying. Unless you repent, um, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not a simple saying of I'm sorry, a mere feeling of remorse or self-reproach or sorrow, said one commentator, generated by fear of punishment without any wish or resolve to forsake sinning. We are told In 2 Corinthians, that godly sorrow produces a repentance. A true repentance is the heart turning away from self and sin. Listen to me. It's turning away from self and sin to Christ and his righteousness. That's the repentance that the Lord calls you to. Do not hear me say, clean up your lives and get more disciplined, then you'll enter into heaven. Hear what I'm saying. Turn to Jesus Christ and be delivered from the wrath to come. A heart that is resting in Jesus Christ is a heart that no longer is satisfied with sin. The idea that you can call upon Jesus Christ as Savior and not take Him as Lord is a completely godless idea. For the man who looks upon Jesus Christ and is saved from the wrath to come is a man, a woman, who embraces righteousness because he understands that sin is a heinous thing and he turns from it. Jesus Christ is telling these people, you must turn from your sin. You must look to God to be merciful to you and then you will be saved. You can't just change your life and say, there, I'm good. Everything's squared away. Now I can go on with my life. It's a change. And you understand why I'm preaching this to you. is because the church is full of this mindset that I just live a clean moral life and now I'm a good citizen and I'm fit for heaven. When I'm telling you there's a lot of good moral people who just got smacked by a hurricane and today they're in hell. Are you prepared to die? True repentance is the heart turning away from self and sin to Christ and to his righteousness. That is what the Lord calls us to, my friends. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You must come to Jesus Christ to find that change of heart, to have and produce that genuine repentance um, in order to be spared from destruction and eternal punishment. So here are the things that I would like you, we're wrapping this up right now, These are the things that I would like you to examine yourself about. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? Or are you just being a moral citizen of the visible church? Martin Lloyd-Jones said he would preach the gospel message at one of the services in the church each Lord's Day. He said you would be wrong to assume that everyone who comes to church is a believer in Jesus Christ. And I think we have to take that to heart I think we need to examine ourselves am I truly in Jesus Christ have I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ have I rejected my own uh, satisfaction with myself with my own morality and my own pride have I come to an end of saying this is wretched and I want nothing to do with it like the Apostle Paul who said I boast not in my flesh Now I consider all of those things that I once was, all of those things that I've put confidence in, that I've placed stock in, I look at it now and I say it's nothing more than manure. I look to Jesus Christ alone. That's the righteousness he calls us to. And to test that, whether your faith is a genuine thing, let me ask you this. Does it bear out the fruit of repentance? Do you love those who are unlovely? Will you pray for those who hurt you? Will you look after those who have no one else to look after them? Will you suffer for the name of Christ? Will you deny your flesh when nobody else is looking at you? Do you care that Christ died for your sins? Do you labor at turning away from those sins? Or do you say, doesn't matter? Christ died, I might as well imbibe. The question is, is your faith a living faith? Is Is it a genuine faith? My friends, this table in front of us today, what is it? What is it but a picture of what Christ Jesus came to do for the sinner? What we were unable to do, he came and he accomplished in our stead. The eternal son of God entered into human flesh and died. And now he's coming again. And this, this is our confession. Not me, but you, Lord. You have sustained me. You are the one who carries me into heaven. Is this your boast? Is this your hope? Even if death comes to you, what does the scripture say? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not even a hurricane. Not a shooting. Not a stabbing. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's our hope. That's how we prepare. We look to Jesus Christ to be our righteousness before God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and pray that your blessing will be upon it. And I pray that you would cause your people, these people, to sit and listen to your word and to take to heart the instruction that is given to us in this passage of scripture knowing, Lord, that we are not better than those who suffered what they did, but we are just the same. We pray that you would keep us from smugness and self-righteousness, and we pray, O Lord, that we would embrace the Lord Jesus while we may still, knowing that a day of judgment is coming on this world, that Christ himself will descend on the clouds, and he will, with his angels, bring about fire and destruction on this earth such as has never been seen, And we will all be standing before your throne and we will give account. For whether we have clung to the Lord Jesus or whether we have stuck to ourselves and in our stubborn pride said, I am good enough. We O Lord, know that none is good enough. So grant, Lord, that we, in your grace, would turn from our sins and to embrace the Lord Jesus today. I do ask this humbly in his name. Amen.